0: Hey, here we are. We are here.
1: Do you want me just start reading, or do you? Is there any other way that one would approach this other than?
0: I don't think so. All the cute closet opens have been done.
1: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and today I'm here with producer Justine Paradise. Hello. So about a month ago, we released an episode as part of our 10 by 10 series.
0: Indeed, yes, the series where we explore special ecosystems. And in this case, it was the sand beach. We had piles and piles of sand. It was almost like hills and valleys and rivulets. I think it's fair to say that the beach is one of the most flexible or dynamic, if you will, habitats in the world. It's super geologically unstable. Yeah. um, And I won't won't rehash the whole episode, but essentially the, the TLDR big idea we explored here was how sand beaches are just constantly in motion.
1: Right. Sand is little. It moves. The waves move it. The wind moves it.
0: Right, and this quality of being ever in motion actually helps the beach to absorb and survive the impact of storms and flooding and all that. Um, But I think that even though the actual beach is always in motion, our idea of the beach, the beach that we remember, has a way of getting frozen at a particular time. What do you mean? Um, I think we want the places that we know and love to stay the same. Like, it's hard for us to see the landscape of our memories disappear, Um, And I think this is obviously true of a lot of landscapes, but it might be particularly true of sand beaches. And um, maybe I think this because it's the place where I myself grew up. Um, (laughs) You know, like I I probably talk about it too much, but I I grew up and my family still lives on a sandy island, Nantucket. Um, And so many of my, you know, rose-tinted childhood memories take place on the sand beach, Um, but here's why beyond my own experience that i think beaches have a special element of nostalgia a lot of beaches are tourist destinations like vacation spots so i observed growing up that for a lot of families who come to the island in the summer it's like the time that they're together for the whole year um you know american culture is so work focused and we get so little time to be at leisure so this time on nantucket or wherever on on the beach can hold a really special place in people's lives and memories
1: yeah that's so interesting. I mean, i I think about this in my life that that the place that we went on vacation every summer over and over was was a campground on the ocean. Um, and I remember going back to it as an adult uh, years later and and you know, every little thing that had changed, like the you know, like the oceanside snack shack had been like renovated, and it was a personal affront.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I think people want to go back to that same beach. But that means that we want for the landscape to stay the same. But again, the beach needs to be in motion by its nature.
1: Right. To be a beach.
0: It needs to be a beach. And sometimes people or a town or whatever, they attempt to arrest the motion of the beach, like putting up a seawall or something, um, which, let's be real, is not just to protect people's memories, but also to protect their investments and their vacation houses.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't mess with people's vacation houses.
0: My point here is that nostalgia can be this kind of distorting force And this imagined or remembered beach really can loom large. And it can have very real practical implications. For instance, as we talked about in the episode, a seawall might protect the house behind it, but it often exacerbates the loss of the beach itself.
1: Right, like the the effort to keep things the same actively undermines the very ability for it to exist in the first place.
0: Precisely, yeah.
1: So... As you were reporting and researching the episode on beaches, you you came across one of those implications, you know, so the the imaginary of the beach, the way that we think of the coast, it's something that might actually be affecting a field of science.
0: Yes. And I ended up having a conversation with this person who's thought a lot about this, um, about the scientific method and what it rests on and how, in particular, this shadow of the imagined beach is impacting um, their field
2: of study, which is plastic pollution. Okay, let's hear it. So most people know at this point that there's plastics in pretty much every environment you look in, from Mars to the bottom of the ocean, but it's really uneven in all those places. This is Dr. Max Liberon, an associate professor of geography at
0: Memorial University of Newfoundland, and they study plastic pollution.
2: And so my job is to look at the specific plastic profile in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Canadian province I work in. It's a big fishing industry. There's a lot of sustenance, food, uh, sort of uh, hunting and fishing. Uh, And the plastic is very unique here, and, and so is our environment and our shorelines.
0: The scale of plastic pollution in the ocean is immense. Plastic can choke or entangle animals. It can break down to microscopic sizes and release pollutants as it degrades. Plastic's also eaten by all manner of marine life, including fish, who can then be caught and eaten by humans. We don't really know how all this plastic is changing the ocean and impacting our bodies. But when Max set out to study plastic pollution in Newfoundland in 2014, there was this moment on the coast that for them called into question the basic principles of the scientific method, a moment which brought into focus the degree to which science can have a point of view, and a moment which in 2020, Max ended up writing about for Orion magazine. Yeah, can you tell me about the the shores and landscape of, of Newfoundland and specifically the research site that you were talking about?
2: So Newfoundland and Labrador is a province with two parts and the island of Newfoundland is nicknamed the rock. And so our shorelines are rocks, cliffs, not even gravel, sometimes gravel if we're lucky, but sometimes just sheer rock. There's occasionally sand that's gotten swept up from somewhere. but And then if you go into Labrador, that's ice and more rock, right? So there's sometimes sandy beaches here and here, but the vast majority are these black, pointy, shiny, frozen rocks. And uh, I wrote a piece for Orion about one little... um, they're called tickles here, like sort of appendixes that come in, like these little tiny bays that come in. So you'll hear like black tickle and and, and provolar tickle. <laughs> and. Anyway, the gut is a tickle. No one calls it tickle gut or they just call it the gut. But it's basically this little appendix of water that comes right into the edge of town. There's still some people who have traditional fishing stages, which are like fishing shacks that, that stand in the water on stilts and are half on land, half in water, and people bring their boats up and their catches in. And because I can get to it with public transit, and because it's still a, a fishing area with water coming in from the Atlantic Ocean, we do a lot of our research tests there, like will this work? We'll try it in the gut. And that is one of the first places I went when I got my job here several years ago. And I had been trained in the standardized method for looking for small plastics, microplastics, on shorelines. Um, there's one put out by the United States, and there's another one put out in the European Union. They're almost identical. And what you do is you scoop sand and and sieve it. And there was no sand. There wasn't even tiny gravel. Right? There were boulders and sheer rock and ice. And I was like, do I have to quit my job? I can't. Do I make science that? doesn't make sense with any other science? What do I do? And I ended up working with a a group of brilliant people, including someone named Jess Melvin, where she's gone to different parts of the province and finds the same problem. And they did this huge study where they looked at all the different published publications, scientific publications about marine plastics on shorelines. That's 361 studies, well over 3,000 research sites. Only 4% of them talked about not sand. And that's everything from like little gravel to boulders, right? So the whole coarse sediment generally. But the world has way more than 4% not sand beaches, right? So, so we were like, oh my God, the scientific community doesn't know anything about beaches that don't look like resort beaches. They don't know anything that don't look like San Francisco. How is this possible? How is it that we have a global knowledge on, on plastic pollution without global landscapes?
0: Yeah. Well, what does that say about how plastics pollution science like sees the coast, quote, sees, quote unquote?
2: So it's it's interesting because so there's very little standardized uh, methods in plastic pollution research because it's a brand new field. And that's that whenever a new field kicks off. Everyone's what you call the cold water cowboy. People are trying things that work and they're not standardized. The one place in our field that is standardized is shoreline plastics, because these two government agencies from the EU and the United States made them. And this is the sand protocol.
0: Why do you think the focus was on sand? Why do you think that happened?
2: So I don't know why the focus was on sand, but... There are several possibilities. One is that, so the the standardized methodology came from a core group of people, right? There are people's names attached to this. They're on the author's list. There are like six of them. Maybe they lived in a place where there was sand. Or maybe they lived in a place that had sand and other things. And they're like, oh yeah, sand is easier. Because the sand way of doing it is much closer to how other sediment analysis happens, um, in other sort of scientific disciplines, right? You put things in a sieve and you shake them and they stratify. You, you can't do that with giant rocks. Um, and it might've been just the, the, the cultural bias for sandy places. Where do you want to research? Would you like to research on a cold cliff or would you like to research on this beach? Well, for some reason we keep researching on the beach, right? That's also like, so most research is done in the summer, even in places that have more than one season. We have fair weather science because when how do where do you want to carry your gear? Do you want to carry it over ice in a blizzard, or would you like to go with your, you know, beach towel? Well most people are like beach towel please.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like a, a vacation mentality. Well it's just nice it to do
2: science for twelve hours when it doesn't suck outside. Um, I can't blame people for that.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> <you> get it. <laughs> But as understandable as the possible motivations behind fair weather science might be, Max found that the sand protocol ended up shaping the research.
2: In these papers that we're reviewing, people will be like, yeah, there was, it was a huge rocky beach and we found the one place with sand. Or like, there was snow and we dug around it. Or, you know, like, because there's no protocol for how to deal with not sand. And so... I think there's an anxiety. Scientists have an anxiety, a professional anxiety, mm-hmm. um, where if you can't replicate something, the the phantom of it not being valid is very real, right? And so they'll they'll do these tricky moves and these jerry rigs and these 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 weird put together things so that they can replicate something, even if the replicant doesn't represent their environment, because otherwise the, your your science becomes questionable. Can you publish this? Can you compare it? What does it even mean? So there's and there's this call for standardization, but we're worried that it'll be standardized to very specific environments And places like Newfoundland and Labrador and the Arctic, where I work, will be left out of those standards because we're not the primary imagined landscape in which, you know, knowledge takes place.
1: Outside In will continue after a break. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Let's pick up our conversation with Dr. Max Liberon. Max studies plastic pollution, but ran into problems with the scientific method when it came to sampling for microplastics on the rocky shores of Newfoundland.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about this principle of standardization because... um, as I understand it, you know, one of the principles in science is repeatability. So you develop a standard methodology that can be repeated so the results can be compared to different areas or different time periods. Bingo. Um, but you... Yeah, but you kind of question this standard, the purpose of standardization and the worldview it sort of suggests. So what do you see in this principle? What What about standardization do you question?
2: So you perfectly described like the principle of repl- replicability in science, right? You do it the same way so that no matter where or when you do it, you compare it with other results. You can tell whether things are changing. The problem is that that assumes a universality That the landscape stays the same and you can actually do that same thing in all the seasons in all the places and seasons and places don't actually allow that so that that comes out i mean i wrote in orion i wrote the piece about this idea of a universal landscape or a universal context where the details might change but the essence doesn't that comes out of western thought right starting with the ancient greeks Talking about like the essential property of things gets a big bump in the Enlightenment with replicability and what we would now call Western science or modern science. And it's still very much with us if we're a Western-trained scientist.
0: In their article for Orion, Max wrote, quote, What would it look like to move away from practices that make environments into terra nullis? Blank slates for scientific desire regardless of whether those desires are environmentally or industrially benevolent. How can we adapt research so that it does not have to resemble laboratory conditions or beach resorts to be valid?
2: There are lots of ways of knowing that don't rely on universalism, um, but my job does. Right? The, the science that I <laughs> practice in my job does rely on it uh, at a university. So we've tried to say, like, okay there's a type of monitoring and a type of comparing and yes especially if with with pollution research you have to compare n- now to before and now to the future you have to tell whether pollution's getting worse or not but what if you only do that for this province what if you only do that for the places that matter here as opposed to the places that matter globally which if you think about it don't exist right there's no universal we that that's impossible there's no single way to be concerned about pollution or to be harmed by plastics or to use the ocean or to be dependent on the ocean right there's no universal way so what if we what if we did replicable local science right instead and so that's what we started doing because actually we don't have a choice we can't do universal science here i have located one beach on this entire island you know island of newfoundland that is sandy and it's not, it's a tourist beach and it's not where people fish. And we care about plastics in our fish. So it's sort of a stupid beach for me to monitor anyway. Although <laughs> I have, because it was sandy and I was like, thank God I can monitor here. So I have the data, but we actually haven't processed it because no one needs that data, it turns out. Right. When I, the first few months I came here, I was like, where's the sandy beach? And everyone pointed in the same direction. I sampled it and, but nobody cares. Hmm. It's like
0: it changes. Who the science is for? Yeah, when you approach it differently.
2: Yeah, so I bet I could publish that Sandy Beach study, but it means I'm be wasting my time in terms of people who need the research here. And this is an ocean-dependent province. We eat out of the ocean. We live on the ocean. Uh, so I need to do better, right? Than just publishable replicability.
0: This reevaluation of universal protocols of the scientific method. It's really just the tip of the iceberg. Max is the author of a forthcoming book called Pollution is Colonialism, which explores some of the themes touched on here, like if and how science can be anti-colonial and indigenous approaches
2: to research. So there's a a discipline called Feminist Science Studies that's a very well-established academic discipline um where in the 70s uh women who were scientists were like wait a minute this is sexist like these research questions are actually <laughs> sexist like how do male and female monkeys how do male monkeys dominate female monkeys and you're like well that that seems like a biased question um and these started, they started being like wait a minute wait a minute so so there's this existing field that says of, of feminist science studies that says Science is cultural, just like everything else, including the value of objectivity and who can and cannot be objective and how you achieve objectivity, which is, by the way, going to sandy beaches only at this point, right? Uh, It's got this baggage. And so I knew about that legacy and the critiques of science as being cultural and um, as well as sexist, it's also quite colonial, right? So not only was science... um, necessary to colonize and do imperialism right researching malaria so that your settlers stay alive and cultivating plants and and you know climate and how do we keep people from freezing all this sort of thing but also it was seen as like a reason to colonize like bringing science to the the poor primitive masses as a way to lift them up and into modernization so it's got that attachment but this concept of universalism is also quite imperial so An anti-colonial science is one that doesn't start from the premise that Western science is the best or only way to know something, right? Local fisher folk here know way more than I do about ocean conditions and, and what happens to plastics in the ocean. And... Also, that um, is research. Just going onto land, indigenous land, and doing research is not actually an inherent good. It's a, it's a, entit- a colonial entitlement to feel that you can just go onto any land you want because you have a good idea and because you're doing benevolent research. Actually, you still have to ask permission. You can think of it like sex. Even if you're really good at sex, you still have <laughs> to ask, and they're still allowed to say no, even if you're really good at it. It's the scientific <laughs> equivalent.
1: That was Dr. Max Liberon speaking with Outside In producer Justine Paradise. Max is an associate professor of geography at Memorial University in Newfoundland and author of the book Pollution is Colonialism, published in May of 2021. This episode of Outside In was produced by Justine Paradise. Our team is Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and theme music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Don't forget about the Outside In Book Club right around the corner here. The first pick is Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape by Lorette Savoy. We'll put a link to find it at your local bookstore in the show notes and on the episode post at our website, which is outsideinradio.org. While you're there, we'd also like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter, which we send out every two weeks. It has episode extras and links to articles we've been reading and opportunities to get involved in the show, like voting on future topics or call-outs for submissions. Again, that's all on our website, OutsideInRadio.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.